architectural landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode I am joined by Laura Evans and we jointly interview Alice uh, Casey and Keen Deegan of the Dublin-based practice TACA. In the 10 years since the creation of the practice, Alice and Keen have created a series of remarkable buildings. These buildings show a consistent set of interests, most obviously perhaps an engagement with typology and the vernacular to produce forms which are situated in the social and physical context in which they work. There's much more to the work, however, including a recurrent interest in how architecture can foster social encounters and ritual as part of the everyday life of the people who use it. This technique fuses a combination of local found conditions, some quite close to home, but also more exotic concerns cited from around the world, a kind of a conversation about the local and the global situated in a territorial architecture. In this conversation, we range widely, including um, their thoughts on their own education, how they met and set up their practice, and where their next steps might be. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to Kingston, Alison Keane. And for our Listeners, I'd also like to just mention that Laura Evans, who works with me in Register, is also here, so welcome Hi. all. <laughs> Hello. Um, I might kick things off, which is to say we've been good friends for a while, Yeah. Mm-hmm. but we've never really had a conversation about why either of you ended up studying architecture and how that happened. Oh, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, my... Mother and father were both architectural technologists, so I kind of had that experience going back quite a long time of going to sites when I was younger and things like that. And I mean, it's kind of a pretty banal answer, but I was always interested in art and drawing and things like that as a child. And I was reasonably good academically. And the the kind of prevailing wisdom at the time was if you're interested in art, doing well in your marks and artistically inclined, then maybe architecture, you should go that route because there was some perception that it was, that you'd earn more money or something like that. Okay. (laughs) So it's like, it's it's only, that's kind of a pretty banal answer, but that's how... Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I think that's probably true for everybody a little bit. I, like for me, I don't know. Actually, I can't remember ever <clears throat> deciding to be an architect, but I do remember always wanting to be one, Okay. if you know what I mean. And it was just a fact. It was weird. There's no architects in my family. My, like, my dad's a doctor. My mom's a nurse. There's nobody who does it. Um, and, but I just always remember that that's what I wanted to be. So much so that in, so in, in Ireland, you get this, what they call fourth year in school is transition year. And you have to do two weeks work experience in an office. Um, and I did one week in an architect's office in the Department of Education, which was amazing. And then another week in a car mechanics, because like, I just said I don't want to do anything else but architecture, so I have to do these two weeks. Um, but also, I think now I'm going to sound really posh, but mum and dad were always uh, either doing up a house or buying something to do up. So there was a lot of sort of being around builders and and things like that. And I always liked that process. It was always really exciting. But other than that, yeah, it's a bit like Ian. It wasn't some shining light or calling, I don't think, in that way. I mean, I don't. I can't say I particularly enjoyed college, actually. Okay. I, like, I, I, so I remember enjoying first and second year, 
because you're still a bit kind of wide-eyed and sort of, you know, still feels a bit like one extended art class. Do you know what I mean? But by the time I got to third and fourth year, where you really have to start knuckling down and <laughs> being an architect, I lost my way totally. I hated, absolutely hated. And after fourth year, um, went off and worked for a year in an office, but really in an architect's office. Uh, but not anything particularly creative, you know, just doing the job of being the lowest person in the office. And uh, But really, I was only doing it to make money to go off travelling. And I went off travelling for a year then. And it was amazing. Best thing I ever did. So two years out. And then fifth year was amazing. It was brilliant. Of course, I met Keen that year as well. Uh, before it's we go... It's a big difference. Clearly <laughs> <laughs> so, meeting Keen. Keen was the hype. That's when the shocking lights came. You know, I was like, <laughs> This is my life now. What was it you hated so much at that time? Um, well, now, in fairness, so um, it was a weird time in the... Now, a weird time probably for me as well in that I probably... I think I wasn't actually grown up enough to be in university. I sort of slightly missed school, which was pretty regimented. And, you know, you knew what you were doing and you just went along with the flow. I, I didn't quite like the kind of self-motivation that the college required. But also there was a, a funny thing about... It, was, it wasn't the best time in terms of teachers in the, in the college that I was in. And it, it felt like the college, as, I mean, I had lost my motivation, but it also felt like in terms of the teaching staff, you know, really basic things like, you know, they'd set deadlines and then nobody would hand up and nobody would say anything. Do you know what I mean? As basic as that, you know, and you'd sort of, you know, you'd be supposed to be having crits and nobody would turn up, you know. And so it felt like there was this ability, you were, you were able to just kind of lose interest and nobody really noticed, do you know. Yeah, these things are kind of all pervasive. I think, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I don't. That. I kind of don't want to, you know, sort of blame university for it. <laughs> but I feel like that if you know that where when it, when the staff are really engaged, it's much harder to kind of fall by the wayside and just stop going in. I mean, that's basically mm. what I did. I just stopped going in mm. for a while. Yeah, <laughs> I did that in fourth year. Yeah, it was fourth year. Yeah. Yeah, and it was like that was really clear though because we had had a kind of animal few years, first to third year, with like, you know, Sheila Donald, Vaughan Farrell, all these people, yeah. being Shane de Blockham, Tom de Fuerk. And then it just felt like a bit of a desert, fourth year. It felt like the year that nobody really knew what they were doing. They'd come down, they'd sit beside your desk and they'd go, so what are you doing? And you'd say, and then there'd be this long awkward silence, and then they'd sort of go away. Yo, what? So what is with the awkward silence? Like, I remember, like that used to be the way people critted you. They'd just sit beside you and not talk until you got so desperate, or I got so desperate, that I'd just make something up to tell them. Like it, that doesn't seem to be the way crits are done anymore. But I do remember these really like cringe making, you know, ten minute silence, and then eventually they just sort of give up and walk away. But it doesn't even happen anymore. Was that Laura, your school? Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't remember the 10 minute silence. It had obviously been phased out by the time I maybe, was. Maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like maybe the people had become nicer. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. No, but these other things are all very familiar. Sort of moments yeah. where you lose your way and moments where you find it. The first few years were more difficult for me. Oh, really? So I first done, and second year? Yeah, because I had, I had done another degree first. And so I had in my mind... I believed that I knew what university was about, right? So yes. it's kind of the opposite to you. I thought yeah. I had cracked it, but obviously I hadn't. And so yeah. I didn't understand. So, but 
I'm doing I'm doing all the things I've always done yeah I'm really hating it actually <laughs> um I think I was quite difficult to teach also would be fair to myself well um, there, there is that yeah, yeah it's about how receptive you are probably to what somebody's saying like I yeah. think I found a lot of the criticism I took quite personally mm. I think everyone does in the beginning yeah I know I, but yeah. I wouldn't normally like weirdly outside of university I could take criticism and wouldn't take it necessarily yeah. personally but there was yeah. just something maybe because I thought I wasn't doing very well at it or something but it just yeah, the minute I'd criticise I'd just give up I think that silence though is uh, it's not sensitivity and it's not care it's somebody who shouldn't be teaching because they don't have an opinion that's what I think it is and mm. I remember there'd be crits where you know the one thing if Shane de Blockham sat beside you or mm. Sheila or Shelley yeah. or Tom to where anyone you never got that silence because they were so busy seeing potentials in yeah. what you had and trying to wrestle it into their worldview that there was just no room really to set, to have mm. those pauses and then they were on to the next student but I've really got a lot out of that because they were just offering 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 and afterwards you just kind of go Jimmy yeah. Mac yeah. Yeah. what will I take from this <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That so, sounds like a really good project. I would show it to you. Yeah, and I think that is, I think maybe tutors are more conscientious now, but also I think there's just basically a lot more talented, educated people around to draw from. I think generally that there's a lot of good young architects out there eager to make good work and then eager to teach and they have opinions. So to the students listening today, you are in a possibly a golden age of discourse. Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so Keen. How was that journey to meeting Alice in five years? <laughs> Do you remember it as fondly as she does? Well, I, I mean, my experience at college was, was with a lot of things with me and Alice was almost polar opposite. Like, That's I, because Keen was the golden child. All oh, right. Was not top true. That of the class. No, I, I like... <laughs> I wasn't. Yeah, no. But like, I kind of passively walked into the subject. I didn't kind of, you know, as I say, I wasn't driven into architecture, just kind of fell into it. But then college was when the subject kind of came alive for me. So uh, I, I really, really enjoyed college. And I had a pretty good run of tutors. Like Alice was saying, she had bad run through. She was in different years than me. So, so there were, at that time, DIT, it's not like that anymore. But there was a kind of an ebb and a flow of there was a group of good teachers and there was a group of not so great teachers. And you were kind of lucky if you got it, some of the group in your year when you were in that year, and it kind of changed quite a lot. So I had quite a good run through, and I had at least a smattering of inspirational teachers each year as I went through. And I think I, I would have stayed in college for 10 years if I could. I, I love it. I, I just love it. <laughs> but we did meet a tutor fairly recently, and uh, she, like, it was me and Keen standing together in a restaurant, and she comes up to Keen. I'm not going to say her name. <laughs> she goes up to Keen. She's like, oh, oh Keen, I hear you're doing so brilliantly. I always knew you were going to be amazing. And then she looks at me and she goes, God, Alice, you really struggled in college. And she looked at me and then went back to Keen. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. <laughs> Our joint achievements aren't seen as that at all by... <laughs> A certain generation in DIT, but anyway, but I, you know, that was, it was kind of funny. It was good, though. It reminded me how much I didn't like college, though. But I, I, I think there's, there's something that is really important to say, which is that I think that when you're in college, you think college is the be-all and end-all, and that if you're not good in your five years, you're, which is a very small period in your entire career, but if you're not good in those five years, you're not finding your feet 
that means you're not going to be a good architect. And that absolutely isn't true. I think some people like me, I I found my feet, well, probably in fifth year, but then also working in an office, doing the day-to-day job of being an architect, which isn't, you know, doing filing and doing sanitary schedules. There's a lot of design and creativity in it, but it's just through the medium of dealing with it in a much more, I suppose, real and pragmatic way. That's how I found kind of my love of it and found that actually I was quite... I was better at it than I thought, I suppose. And it's that thing to know that there's life and hope after university, I think. But you know there's, there's that, which is the student thinking is the be-all and end-all. I think that's sort of understandable because yeah. it's the only world they know. What I find much less forgivable are the academics who think that the university is the whole world. Yeah. And, you, you know, you, you, as a student, you don't get exposed to the nonsense that sometimes permeates academic discourse. But like, you know, heads of schools talking as if their school is the entire world and that it has to represent the entire world. And you're going, no, 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 it's just, it's just the start. It's just the first step, guys. Be clear about that. You're not, you don't set the future course for these students. I mean, you were talking about, Alice, that you weren't so satisfied about your education and then others have gone through very strong educations and not turned out to have a career as good as yours. I think that a school doesn't really set your trajectory so much as your own personality 100% yeah I think there's a lot like there's a lot to be said for self teaching especially in university Mm. and self motivated teaching that's not you're not just taking what's being told to you that you're fine like I found the library the DIT had really actually a really good library did it? yeah I never went to but they had like amazing journals for like all the journals going back decades and they had a pretty decent selection of architecture books and like those things opened up at least as much as the as the tutors to me you know like possibilities and directions when you like so when you start off you don't know any of this stuff like you know it's it's, it's it, and then you, you start finding these things in books and in journals and you go wow okay that person approached it that way okay that's and there was something with DIT with that that there was that slight kind of neglect but it was a it was a kind of a a beneficial neglect or a benevolent neglect (laughs) or we saw it as that way maybe I'm not sure it did but yeah you you did have to go and a lot of the times find the things that you wanted to enjoy and like you know that and for a while there I think it, it was actually a it was a can't think of the word but it, it was a really positive thing I think and mm-hmm. I think certainly um, and I think I've probably said it before but weirdly actually moving from Dublin to London when we started working and we there for the first time we'd started working with students that had gone through things like the unit system and have this kind of um a very charismatic leader of the unit that would it appeared from the outside almost kind of impress their way of doing on these students and the students in some ways didn't even know what way they were supposed to do things other than the way he or she wanted them to do it and then when it comes into working in an office when you when suddenly that charismatic leader is sort of gone or not there anymore it becomes much more difficult to kind of find your own feet and to to make your own judgments on whether the thing that you're doing is good or bad. Do you know what I mean? So there, there is something to be said about that, but I, I have issues with the human system anyway, so but we won't talk about that. Well, we will. <laughs> <laughs> I'd quite like to talk about that. Um, I've, I've, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, the kind of... Uh, 
it's kind of an old way of teaching in some mm. ways, the sort of the atelier and, and the master, and you go there and you sort of learn that specific thing for a year, and then next year, well, either you do something else or you continue to do the same thing mm. and follow the same trajectory ad infinitum. And it's kind of, I mean, it's, it's interesting in some ways, I think, because it allows for schools to represent a kind of a plurality. Mm-hmm. But then... I think it's also really indicative of where we are as a society that there's this kind of illusion of choice. It's like, oh, you can choose between all of these different things, but actually, really, you're just choosing architecture. And you know, in the year system, when you show up and whoever's in charge that year is who teaches you, and sometimes it's a really rocky experience and you don't get much from it, and sometimes it's much more rewarding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of a lottery. Aspect yeah. To it. Like the unit system, I get it, right? I get it as it evolved in the AA, where mm. there was genuine, productive, frictive differences between philosophies. And it was handy for Boyarsky to make a school, to manage all these cats in a bag, by basically going, <laughs> there's, not, there's not one bag, there's actually yeah. three or four bags, and have at it. And the students then were trusted to mediate that, right? But in Ireland, we've never had the unit system and what I find really strange about the unit system in the UK is just how all-pervasive it is. You go to a school in Northern England or you go to a school in Scotland or in Northern Ireland, it's all a unit system. And I'm sorry, you probably don't have an ecosystem of that many viewpoints to manifest a genuine unit system. And, and I found that most of those places, they were manufacturing difference for the sake of difference, like yeah, esoterica yeah. in the brief. And I only know the year system where... One of the great things with the year system is that there's eight tutors or something. Mm. And like, you know, three or four of them are duds. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really good. Or it may not align with your viewpoint or your way of doing things. No, they're duds. <laughs> but that's okay because, because it allows you to position yourself on the subject. And sometimes you want a gentle chat with somebody who isn't going to challenge you too much. And sometimes you don't want to talk to anybody. But it's, it's a much... It produces less work. The one thing I can say for sure is that yeah. the unit system is a hothouse that is production-oriented. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very capitalist thing. Mm. The other thing I can also say is it's much easier for school management to pay and handle students using the unit system. Well, I, well, I think when the unit... The, the person or people who are leading the unit become overbearing in terms of the education the, and the narrowness of the education that the, the students are getting I think that becomes an issue because I think that the thing about finding your own position is so important as an architect and I think we saw examples of that you, you know that that ability to find your own position being taken away by by doing incredible work in college but kind of doing incredible work in the vein of, of somebody else. And I think that's where it becomes problematic, even if they, the people teaching are, the, leading the unit are incredible architects themselves. I think there is a strand of education that gets missed in, in that route, like that kind of ability to position yourself, which I think is a kind of a key it's a key ability. It's a, it's a key ability if you want to start your, I mean, especially if you want to start your own practice, I think. There's mm. if you, and that's a thing I think that um, a lot of students, dare I say, especially female students, don't seem to 
think is necessarily an option. Well, less so in the in London. I can't speak of the rest of the UK because I don't have experience of it. In London, actually, it feels like you can graduate college and set up your own practice straight away, and there's no problem with that. Whereas in in Ireland, you do it. It tends to be a different way. I mean, people will go at least five years working before they set up a practice, and some of them will go ten years. And people tend to there doesn't there's less of that motivation, I think, to set up your own practice. Hmm. And I've kind of totally contradicted myself because I because <laughs> what I'm saying, I suppose, is that it, it must be hard to set up your own practice if you've been under this, you know, charismatic leader all the time and then suddenly you have to do it on your own. Whereas, but in Ireland, I think it's more about the culture of it, the reason that people don't, that young people don't just go ahead and set up their own practice and just be done with it and sink or swim, do you know? Because you do, I mean, the... Most people will. I never hear of anybody setting up a practice straight out of college. Whereas in the in London, in Ireland, it's kind of, in Ireland sorry, it's kind of common. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, Tom would be the only person I know that probably he might have worked for someone else for a year, maybe. But, but what I wanted to say is that we'd got you from your college to arriving in London and sitting beside these people from the unit system, right? Yeah. So yeah. what was that like? Young Irish architects out of college, you start to go out of the stage. You're in London working for different practices. It was incredibly intimidating in the beginning, I yeah, think. I was terrified initially. I was like in with the, the cream of Cambridge and the Bartlett and these kids who were the same age as me and I was just wowed by their ability, their skill. Um, but it took me it took me two or three years to realise that I had different abilities to them. I didn't have the kind of that polished magic that they were doing. Um, but this kind of thing that we were discussing before about a kind of independence and a, a feeling like a kind of innate feeling that, okay, I, I feel like this is the right thing to do. And I, you know, and I can go that way, you know, within the limits of the office, obviously, but you know, that there was a, an independence that maybe some of the, the those other people didn't have, if you know what I mean. So um, initially, I was terrified by it, and they're incredibly skillful, incredibly intelligent people, and they were really, really good and, and great people as well. But it's, I just I, I noticed over time um, a kind of an evenness, like there was a there, there was a kind of a uh, an equalness, but with different abilities you know between us you know because I, I kind of initially felt like the poor cousin going up <laughs> no you do like feel a bit like the bulkhead from DIT kind of especially with DIT elite you know, architects yeah. group because um, I remember when we because we applied to do our part three in the Bartlett and uh, when we first applied we were told ooh DIT we've had some problems with DIT students <laughs> <laughs> I was just like what <laughs> They almost didn't let us onto the course. And and I think actually in the context in that we wanted to do the fast track version of it. We wanted to do the whole thing in six months. And they said, you know, really you should do it in a year and perhaps two years, you know, just to come up to speed with everybody else. But we did it in the six months and we were fine. You've changed the reputation. We've changed. Alice got the school prize for that. I did that year, yeah. I was being modest. I wasn't mentioning that. (laughs) (laughs) But that was a big life. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it was, yeah, yeah. So it it was really intimidating and because the London at the time was kind of the mecca, you know, for contemporary, certainly in in Europe, you know, for contemporary creative design architecture. 
So it was an incredible education. But I suppose my experience was slightly different from Keane's in that um, I went to quite a small office that was, um, I think that it was just a director and two part two students. I mean, not dissimilar to the way kind of we're working at the moment. And he was, at the time, I thought he was kind of older, but he wasn't. He was only 35. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Doesn't that sound awful? Like, you think, oh, he must have it all sorted, you know. But when now I realise, like, I, I only realised, Jesus, he was only 35. Um, so, but it was a complete trial by fire because he had, um, he had, I had, I must, 15 or 20 small domestic projects, smallish domestic projects. And it was him and two students, you know. And you were given three or four projects to run. I mean, obviously he was kind of overseeing and all that kind of stuff, but day to day you were doing it and they were being built, you know, and they were you were going from planning drawing straight to site. Uh, well, mainly because they were refurbishments. I mean, that's the only thing about London if you're working on domestic work. It's very rare you're getting to do new build. Mm. My whole experience for three years were refurbishment and the odd extension. But I mean, and, and but then doing crazy things like just taking your planning drawings, handing them to a builder and saying, let's build that. And then sure, we'll figure it out as we go. <laughs> With the part two student who'd only just graduated from college, who didn't couldn't draw detail if uh, if you wouldn't recognize the detail. Of the but the great thing about that was, is that you learned on the job and you learned how to deal with builders that were very very angry with you because you hadn't you didn't have any drawings and you kept kept having to say tell them to redo it because it wasn't right they're like well how do i know what's right (laughs) (laughs) yeah something we've talked about before is the value of bad experience you know students get so worried about where it is they're going to end up working and they want to work for so and so and they won't accept any yeah 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 but i mean as awful as many aspects of that experience would yeah. have been, you know, deeply unsettling and worrying. You know, yeah. I, I think I presume that looking back on it now, you're kind no, of thinking that I mean, was amazing. But even at the time, I mean, no, I mean, I wouldn't actually have classed it as awful. I actually really quite enjoyed it. I found it incredibly stressful. Yeah. And there was very long days, and there was lots of times that I made really stupid mistakes. <laughs> You know, and I'd have to go and first face up to my boss because of the student escape, then face the builders who'd have to redo the thing because it's my fault. But but I think it goes back to that thing that I was saying about enjoying, say, my parents doing up houses and things like that. I loved, I what I really love, my favourite thing about being an architect is watching something being built. I mean, it has all that horror and stress and all that kind of... Um, involved in it as well but that thing the the best thing that I learned in that is that what I draw because it was literally you would draw something and at the time fax it <laughs> makes me sound so old but you'd you'd fax it to site and it would get built immediately and it was an incredible thing to realize that every line you draw has to represent something or else he'd ring you up and he'd say well, well, what's that like I, I don't understand it and then to next you go to site two days later and you see it built you know and there's something so satisfying. That's the whole point of being an architect, I think. Yeah, I think if you don't enjoy you know, the directness of that relationship, yeah, you're in the wrong. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, if, if, you, if you find that that's too much bother and um, overly, uh, I don't know, pressurised or something like that, then it probably isn't that type of job, isn't the job for you. So I wouldn't have called it a terrible experience. I think it was probably what, I'd call it really formative, mm. good stuff, you know, um, and yeah, I really enjoyed it. So if, you're you're kind of hanging out in London. At what point did you start thinking about working together? Right. 
<laughs> Keen Deegan sat, took me aside in college one day and said, by the way, I will never, ever work with you. Was the <laughs> <laughs> but he said, we will never work together. Was this before you started to go out? Or? No, we were going out at the time. I think yeah. he thought that I was... Um, going to somehow trap him and, uh, into some sort of practice or something I was, like that. I was very immature. And I, thought, <laughs> I, I still believed that ideas were everything in architecture and that there was some kind of purity to an idea uh, that, and that idea had to be built and that was kind of, that was kind of my view of things but that is, that's kind of fundamentally shifted now. It's really working I think. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's over the course of the two was living together and working in London for those three years. I think the reality of what it is to practice as an architect became clearer to both of us. And mm. I think we both saw the worth of each other kind of yeah, in yeah. terms of, you know, what, he, what each other brought to like potentially making buildings. Yeah. And I, I think that the idea of working together then kind of, just gradually came about. Well, it did help that the only project that we had was for my sister and my mother. Yeah. <laughs> he was but, sort of forced into working with me. <laughs> but, that's, no, but that's interesting, right? Because <clears throat> most practices, including ours, start with that, which is mm. somebody asks somebody to do something. Yeah. And it just feels like a totally natural thing to turn around to the person closest to you mm. and say, we're going to do this together, aren't we? Yeah. And there's been no practice until somebody's asked you the question, can you do this for me? Yeah. So, but when you, presumably your sister asked you, Alice, right? Yeah, or, yeah. And no, then you turned to Keen and said... But weirdly, actually, she asked me years before, well, a couple of years before that, and um, maybe only a year, but I th- or whatever it was, I, we, I think we were just moving to London. I didn't, I was very nervous of working for family. And I kind of said... No, look, sure, you've got an architect, just go on with them. I suppose I wasn't confident enough to do it. I suppose I hadn't worked in an office. Like I, I didn't really know, you know what I would have to do. But actually, weirdly then, I don't know, living and working with Key and stuff, I suppose it then gave me the confidence. Then they had the architect, then they put in planning and they didn't like what the architect had done. They still got planning permission for it. And then she said, look, will you please have a look at this? Like, I'd be willing to put in planning again. And actually... For me, it was sort of living and work and potentially having Keen there gave me the confidence. I mean, that sounds kind of pathetic, but it did. Gave me the confidence that we could do a really good job of it. And that, and it, even on very pragmatic terms, that by having Keen there, then it wouldn't just be family member to family member. We'd all have to behave ourselves <laughs> because there was somebody else involved in it, you know. But yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, all our first jobs are for friends and family. But it's like when you're at that early stage, it's, as you mentioned it's totally natural for you to go to somebody who's beside you that you know and say do you want to do this with me because you're a little bit kind of like I'm not sure of my ability here you know and if there's two of us at least we can kind of share the burden or the ability or the skill sets you know and I think that's kind of you're, I think you're right Andrew it's, that's kind of naturally how practices emerge you know out of yeah it doesn't that, that have to be a sort request. of a decision where you write down your memorandums of agreement. Do you know, you tend to just muddle along for a while and then suddenly you look around and say, oh, actually, maybe this could be a practice, do you know? But f- for muddling then, and we're talking about house one and house two here. Yeah. Um, that's some muddle. I mean, 
you like so much of the position of the practice is established in that project, right? Really clearly from the start. Mm. And so, how did that design process work? How did you get there? Uh, I would say most of the moves were instinctive, mm-hmm. um, just like the the house was on a street of pretty crappy house, like the new built house, house one was on a, on a row of pretty crappy red brick houses, but, so we said, oh, well, it should be red brick then, shouldn't it? And well, I remember you know, the, just being the, in London though and seeing an actual by Serge and Bates, and they'd done something with their their brickwork joints that they'd open them up and there was something yellow or something behind them there was some funny thing and I remember it was oh, that like, kind of oh. venting details yeah I don't know what I, I remember at the time thinking oh like you could make an ordinary house out of that it, I, it wasn't a house it was for something else but I mean obviously the whole the project isn't just the brickwork um, I think that we were well we had been working in I suppose or certainly the office that I'd been working in not just in London but um at uh, home as well we were doing jobs that were sort of trying to make very kind of normal brickwork houses into sort of almost new york style lofts you know lots of hidden track lighting and plasterboard everywhere and all the finishes were perfect and your whole literally weeks and weeks on end chasing shadow gaps around details and then beating builders over the head trying to get shadow gaps to align and you know and in the end you look at it and you say god where did all that effort go you know i mean obviously there's much more effort into making something look simple than there is into into something else but i i felt that that was kind of wasted effort i didn't see the big benefit of it so i remember thinking that i I don't want to do that in this. Like really simple things like plant-on skirtings. We're going to do plant-on skirtings and plant-on architraves. I have control. And there was great enjoyment in that to, to realise that you could make the decision and it could be your own decision. And, mm. you, and it's much easier to make, because I always find working in an office hard to make decisions because you're not thinking, what would I do? You're thinking, what would they do? You know, what do they want me to do here? What are they going? Are they going to come on site and say you did the wrong thing? You know, that's the, always the stress of it. But the great thing was was making those decisions, whether right or wrong, and you just have to stand over them. And there was a real satisfaction in that, I think. And then, I mean, that 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 kind of simple decision about skirting boards and architraves, then kind of um sort of spiraled out to being well what is an upper floor it's you know i want something that's solid so let's make it precast they're pretty quick to build let's not put something on under the underside why why do we have to put plasterboard on blackwork walls and it all sort of comes out of that i think and then but there was like between being in london and these houses being built and largely designed, there was a, like a big thing happened for us is that the two of us went away. But we designed for, them in London. No, we designed house aspects. One. We designed aspects of house one. We didn't have, we hadn't detailed them. We hadn't, you know, no. we hadn't made the eaves. We had the big we fireplace though, I think. We, we'd kind of done planning drawings for house one before we left London. Then we left London and for the guts of a year, tra- travelled around the world. And I think unconsciously in the design of those two houses, house one and house two, mm. had a massive fundamental shift on, on or impact on the design of those and on the subsequent practice. And it's the, the, the things we saw on this trip, like the, a lot of it was, was, it was vernacular stuff in Asia and South America, but also kind of the masterworks and 
just it was like such an intense experience seeing all these things these incredible things and they just I think seeped into us and then started to kind of burst back out in places <laughs> so there was kind of that, that that I think in hindsight shifted what we thought at the time were, were two very Irish focused buildings like that you know Irish roofs you know, pitched roofs and we've exposed timber and we've red brick we thought that's what we were doing we were doing contemporary Irish architecture and that was it but actually that trip like things like the concrete table that's related to kind of ritual objects that we saw in India and we wanted to create a kind of a, a sense of domestic ritual in the project and that was something that was really important to us and I think that was unconscious oh yeah you know, that was no I don't ever remember thinking that's you know, where it let's came try from. and that's capture all from. these things that we've seen. I think, I think again, it, it almost it's like that thing. It gave you the confidence that by seeing all these things, these things that are experiencing. Actually, it's not just because you can look at them in books, but you don't quite get it. The big thing is to go and actually go and see it and touch it and walk around it and feel and for yourself what yeah. is to you what's impactful or, or important when it's done where it's when it's there in the physical world like and i think that like the things we saw in japan and india like those mm. kind of ritual objects that are embedded in the streetscape or in a, in a in a building like they're not just things you pick up and you move around they're things that are embedded in either the urban or the domestic landscape and they were like they were really really powerful things mm. and we wanted to kind of bring them back to, to this first project. And I think we were extremely ambitious in a kind of a low key way in the, in these kind of initial two projects. We knew, like I, I think we knew this was, we the knew opportunity. This was an opportunity <laughs> uh, to, to make your first building and to make it as good as it could possibly be. Like not in a kind of a, a, a aggressive way, but like just, we knew that this was going to set the stall out for, for yeah. future jobs. It wasn't the be-all and end-all, but it was a good opportunity for us to, to do something special. And it was 2008 as well. Remember, people had budgets of money back mm. then, you know, so we, we were able to... I mean, they weren't, they, there wasn't huge, actually. My sister's house was, at the time, incredibly... Uh, I can't say cheap because she'd be laughing at me if I said cheap, but it was incredibly cost-effective for, for what it was. And but there wasn't that huge worry about, you know, I have to, I only have a hundred thousand euros and I want something that's three hundred thousand euros, which sometimes can, can motivate a project and 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 all that kind of stuff. But a lot of the time it can kill a project. You know that there is this, it's too big a gap. Well, we didn't have that on this project, so it was great in terms of that. I mean, a year later was a completely different story. So we were very lucky that these projects came when they did at the time that they did that we were ready for them and that there was the ability to make them do you know i think the, the idea of the unconscious reference is a really interesting thing this is something mm. that i wanted to talk to you about you know whether to what extent you were aware in the moment of these things and it's something that we really try to i certainly try to teach my students is that it's what you're exposing yourself to in the world all the time that's forming you and you're not even yeah. usually mm. aware of it and it creates this kind of library that somehow you access through drawing and making and for me also it's you know absolutely not a conscious thing at all and sometimes it only becomes apparent much further down mm. the line <clears throat> but I mean to kind of to paraphrase somebody who taught me who was paraphrasing someone else which I guess is kind of also what your work is doing 
Um, you know, it's like the Rattleberg, it's the Seamus Heaney and mm. Ted Hughes collection of, of poems, of ideas that are just somehow at the back of your mind and then accessed in a particular way. But you have a consciousness about the way that you work as a practice, which maybe has something to do with the PhDs, mm-hmm. which maybe you'd like to tell us a bit about. Yeah, well, like all this stuff about the importance of um, a context which isn't the local context that's directly local to the project itself, um, all of that stuff, understanding that only came through the uh, the PhD, the PhD by practice that myself and Alice have done, and obviously Andrews has, has done as well. Um, and it seems like very simple stuff or very obvious things about our practice in hindsight but when we cast our mind back to the start of that four-year period we didn't know anything like we were still just kind of carrying on instinctively and like some people would argue oh it's better to just do things instinctively anyway but I, I don't think so um we, we were very worried that the phd we thought that we worked intuitively and instinctively and these things happened. you know something happened when we talked to each other and we made things and we were very worried by doing that phd that somehow by talking it all through, you take that away, that by analysing it, it goes. But absolutely not. It's done the complete opposite. By really sitting and thinking and writing and drawing and doing everything and really thinking about these things, we're so much more articulate about what it is we're doing. And by being articulate and conscious about it, it doesn't take that intuition away. It just means that you're much more clever about how you use it. You know what you're doing. I mean, that's the incredible thing, is that you can go so long and you don't really know what you're doing. You know you're doing it, and you know it's it's something that you like, and it's producing a thing that you like, but you don't really know how you're doing it or why you're doing it. And what we found was that this thing of... Well, a really good thing that I learned at the PhD is that intuition in some ways is kind of a myth, or instinct in some ways. Instinct and intuition are just your experience and it's just coming out unconsciously but they're all the things that you've gone out and sought in the world or experiences that you've had and that's all coming back in and feeding itself out another way and so in some ways the PhD you could say got rid of instinct in in that sense of that it's it's this kind of enigmatic thing it just it made us much more able to work within the framework that we had already unconsciously set for ourselves um, and I think we still work the same way. I think absolutely, we, work, we don't yeah, work yeah. any differently than we did beforehand. I think there's just more clarity about what we're doing when we when we do it, and I think that to me leads to more possibilities. Like so, if you if you're if you're clear about what's going on now, then you can kind of push on down that road with a bit of with clarity, I suppose, and then yeah. new things can come out of that. But it's, it's like, it's in a really simple term, say we started to take, um, like we'd always like to travel and go and see things and go to buildings uh, and all that kind of stuff. And we take lots of photos as everybody does. And we have a, a big kind of, in no way organised <laughs> library type thing on thing, which is just the date and the place we were and they're all in there. But now we might consciously go and look back through some of those photographs if we're looking for something in particular, you know, mm-hmm. And we, we, we can do it that way. And we know that that's a valuable thing other than, I suppose sometimes you'd sort of think maybe you're just wasting your time going through old photos. But actually now you realise that it actually is part of the process and it's necessary. Um, and uh, I mean, it does mean that we can write off foreign trips now to the business. 
<laughs> but it's, 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 it's a funny one because I think those PhDs by practice, they sort of, you don't need them any earlier in your career. No. You know, yeah. like it's perfectly legitimate and it's necessary, in fact, that you start filling, I think Phil Christou calls it the larder, in the way that people already have, always have. And for me, the reason, and I think it's what you're saying also, is that architects can get caught in, in, in how the work turns out. Mm-hmm. So you, you set out to do a project and you don't have a particular thing in mind, the first project, and then there it is. And that's how it turned out. And, and people like it. And, and then you're sort of, and then you start to talk about it, you're asked to give lectures about it. And, and you start to make myths about yeah. Yeah. Why, you, why it turned out the way it turned out. And, and then those myths become reality. And you sort of, the hand starts to freeze a little. Yeah. And what I found it interesting about was actually, it, it sort of unlocked a lot of things. Mm. Particularly about architectural language for us, which was, it actually wasn't about any of those things to do with tectonics or language, which was a discovery. And then you can go move forward. And I think that's what you're saying as yeah, well, yeah. because actually a lot of people would have thought the TACA was a tectonically oriented yeah. critical mm. practice. But we're always talking about tectonic <laughs> truths, including ourselves. Including do you know what I mean? Because, because it's exactly what you're saying. It's, it's that um, you do something and then you have to then explain it, something that actually you had was far less rational or clear and by having to let's say talk about it you have to present it as something and being a young architect you want to present it as something almost perfect and then you want to rationalize everything and you make up this story about it that actually in large parts isn't actually true but then you start to believe it yourself so what you're saying is about like people see taka as a tectonic practice that's how we were talking about ourselves and that's how we thought about ourselves but actually there, there are whole other motivations in the practice that we just didn't really know or talk and about. now we're free to to do them as well we're free you know we're free to not be thinking about tectonics in yeah. in the terms of, in the tape frame of reference that we were talking about this honesty and truth all this kind of stuff now we can kind of but i'm hoping like you know 10 years down the line again that there'll be another shift where mm. actually what i was thinking what we were thinking before that that was you know, very one-dimensional or was not quite right or, you know, so it's a, just an ongoing process. But I think the PhD allows you to have uh, a high degree of clarity at a certain point and then you kind of jump off from there again, you know. I don't remember, uh, Laura, if you remember what you thought of those buildings when you saw them first. I, yeah, I do. Yeah. I, I was really moved, actually, by those buildings. I saw them at Open House one year before I came here so I mean maybe 2009 Mm, and it was kind of I don't know I haven't been that touched by anything that I had seen in Ireland really up until that point and I think there was kind of there was a level of wit to them that I really enjoyed this kind of I mean I think there's an interest in solving really practical problems in a kind of quite a meaningful way whereas up until that point I had sort of basically been taught that sort of you know functional things are functional things and visual judgments are visual judgments Mm. and meaning well okay you know you can talk about that word but we're not really that interested and somehow there was no relationship this if this is a Venn diagram there's no overlap between these things 
So it would have been like, it would have been like at the end of my third year, maybe. Mm. It was when mm. my own attitude to my interests was starting to coalesce a bit. Mm. Uh, and it was like, okay, wow, hmm, that's what these guys are doing. And it's about 500 times cleverer than you know, anything I've even vaguely approached at this moment. Um, but wow, it's out there. So I felt, yeah, I've actually really well amazing that. like yeah you were you were far more conscious about those things than we were at the time <laughs> because actually now that's that's very similar to the way that we would talk about it that this idea of these pragmatic um drivers or or think problems i suppose they are things that that you that you don't try and design around them that you embrace them in and they become the project yeah. and that they somehow give you they give that meaning to something that maybe wouldn't have had a meaning before and you use them and intensify them and they can become a whole project in yourself so i'm i'm really impressed (laughs) 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 i mean maybe maybe it's like what we were talking about earlier the myth making and the post-rationalization maybe myth making and post-rationalizing my own no that's great no believe your own own it's it's really really insightful country on on the project so I do remember actually in the midst of going back whatever 10 years ago 12 years ago to designing those and then um, like I was having conversations about like the design should should the design of the things where we elaborate things it should kind of um, orbit around things that need to happen anyway so that it, there's not this bit that's designed there's this thing like we need to get rain off this roof or we need to protect these timbers or we need mm. to people need to sit down at a dining table you know the, yeah. the, there's there are things that the, this wall needs to be built we need to span this you know they're, they're the places where we'll we'll elaborate and we'll we will not just stick things on you know and i do remember having conversations about that but not thinking about it in the eloquent way that you kind of <laughs> analyzed it there it's amazing to hear some speak about the houses like that so thank you you're welcome no, but it's interesting isn't it because like uh, the reason i asked that is because i've Laura is very eloquent, but then also because I went there not wanting to like the houses. Because <laughs> uh, we'd never met. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't talk to you that day. It was oh, the AAI Open House, and uh, there was about 120 architects there. We'd never met. And I actually never even saw the two of you that day. And I was just kind of tromping around, and we'd set up our practice the same time as you, and we just finished our first project. Mm. And I heard there was another good architect in town who might go over and see the work, and I went, oh, you know, they better not be that good, because you know, it's bad enough. It's bad enough. There's start. only one and you're close in this town. Well, it's a small city. And you're, you're walking around it, and I think what I found really compelling about it was moments where it was being apparently incredible, pragmatic, pragmatic and reasonable, and yet was being entirely unreasonable and radical at the same time. So that sounds complicated, but like, there's a staircase that's double the width of a normal staircase. So yeah, you can make somewhere to sit at the bottom, but then also really to make that chasm with the suspended staircase halfway up above and the dark shadow and the light coming down in between, all to expose the pattern of fire brick at the back of the chimney, Mm. which dances its way up that wall. And I remember just standing in that staircase and, and, and going... And the same loo. Yeah, the real did. generation is the same <laughs> loo, Jackie. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. But uh, as somebody walking around, I was missing the disabled loo. And I found that a really odd and really brilliant decision with a staircase in an otherwise typologically very standard domestic yeah. house. Mm. 
And I remember leaning against the concrete column at House 2 with Marcus Donaghy and just going, this is really good, isn't it, Marcus? And he's going, this is really good. <laughs> and, uh, In that really begrudging way that only I architects can do. Like, <laughs> I'm trying the same. No, but Marcus wasn't being begrudging at all. No, he probably uh, isn't. He never is. <laughs> but, no, but I mean to say that is, is that there's a fundamental thing about architecture, which is one of the reasons I love it above all other things, is that when it's good, it's good. It's just good. And it's mm-hmm. inarguable. Yeah. And you just allow yourself to be overwhelmed by it. Now, in that case, a friendship started between us. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but the thing about it is, is that ultimately, it is this thing that you can just taste. You can't really fight it if it's good which I find very beautiful now because that house wasn't interested in style although no. lots of people seem to rip mm-hmm. off its style afterwards but it wasn't about style it was about a different attitude to how you make domestic space mm-hmm. um, so where am I going with that I just wanted to say that in the sense that I think that what's interesting about those first projects that young architects put out there in the world is they really don't know who's seeing those works and the consequences that might flow from those works. And architecture, I think, is very generous in that way. You put something good out there. Yeah. Even small things change for other people, but things are changing for you too. You know, people are changing their opinions about you and opening doors for you that you don't become aware of for many, many years. Um, sorry, that's kind of long-winded, but I think it's an interesting to say when people yeah. are trying to set up their practice. But it's an incredible thing how generous people are, you know, there's, uh, because I think, I mean, I'm kind of the same, when you go to somebody, you're, you're same age, I, it's something about your same generation or your same age, and you go and you walk around and you go, oh shit, it's really good. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you know, and you, but you, I mean, you're saying it in that kind of slightly begrudging way, but also with that pure enjoyment of someone who's just doing something really good and making these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I remember when we, when they were first built, I was kind of shocked at how many people would email you or even ring you or stop you, not quite stop you in the street, like, but you know, maybe stop you in the architect street or wherever that is. <laughs> you know, and say, I really like those projects. And you know, and I'd say, this has never happened to me before. <laughs> And I, yeah, and I couldn't believe it. And, and, and then, you know, it was only two projects, but then suddenly people were asking us to teach places and mm. we were sort of saying, well, we've only built two projects, you know, we're not really proper architects yet. Uh, but it, it does, and it all sort of grows from that. And if you, and I think that thing of, I think we were a bit naive. Well, probably I was a little bit more naive than Keen, maybe. But that if there is this, I mean, I was sort of slightly sneering at honest tectonic, but is there, if there is this kind of honest offering out into the world of something that is a, those were quite a kind of, I suppose, a pure view. They were a real sort of splurge of everything that had been fermenting in our minds for a couple of years. And in that way, there was, there's nothing cynical about them whatsoever. And I think that that, if you put things out into the world that way, then what you get back is usually a lack of cynicism, and it and it tends to be as as generously as you put them out, you tend to get that generosity back. That's not our experience, anyway. I think that's hard to do, somewhere like London. Yes, where I mean, everybody's looking over everybody's yeah. shoulder. Yeah. And I I think that is natural, a natural part of the discourse here, but very difficult then to do something so nakedly sincere. Yeah. Because you have to survive in the discourse here, and it, am I wrong about that, Laura? No, you're not wrong. Mm. I mean, we, we we try not to 
shake or thinking that way, but there is a consciousness that people are looking over your shoulder. Well, I, I remember it from being here, though, that there is that sort of... It, it's a weirdly quite an inward-looking architectural society. I mean, I mean, it's looking at some really nice things, but they're, they're not really looking outside of London in some ways. <clears throat> and it is quite intimidating as an outsider coming into that. And it feels like sometimes that the... the, the that the product of that sort of everybody looking at each other and judging, dare I say, is that you get a lot of things that are about style, about an aesthetic sensibility, rather than necessarily that kind of open, uncynical, this is what I think is good, you know, this is what I would like to live in, or this is where the way I think people, architecture should be, you know. So I think it's a really tough, uh, place to do work actually and I and I love the fact that we're back in Dublin for that sort of stuff I mean this everybody's still looking over each other in Dublin it's just much smaller and you know it's a, it's slightly different but you can be you can do your own thing much more easily I think but, but it's a funny one because I wonder how much of that here is just self-imposed now I can't say but the, one, the other thing you can say about London exactly the same breath is you do anything decent yeah. anywhere within a flight of this place and it's one of the first cities to recognise that I mean yeah. your work would have got celebrated here to a greater extent than Ireland and ours also for a long time initially and so there's this paradoxical link to me about an incredible openness and mm. generosity here and at the same time a feeling of slight claustrophobia and carefulness now Laura's probably better qualified to talk about this than me well I don't know it's, it is paradoxical I think I mean it, becomes sort of a difficult thing to understand you know as, as we're talking I'm trying to think of you know there are people who are pushing against the current and who don't buy into this sort of very cynical very image driven stuff and I'm thinking of Cian's comments earlier about his first colleagues in London how you felt intimidated by the fact that everything was so sort of polished and perfect until you started to understand that actually there were other qualities Hmm, that you were bringing to bear on the situation. So I think, yeah, to some extent, the scene here really continues to suffer from that kind of superficial appreciation of things. Yeah, and it's possibly it's, it's, it's harder to be naive in a place like London. I mean, it's... it's there are real exigencies to <laughs> your, your existence, yeah. 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 That's probably a, a factor of financial success as well. Yeah, you know, London ha- has relatively speaking. I mean, compared to Dublin, which it went through seven years of more than a recession, a depression. Um, that economically, it's harder. You know, it's more expensive to live as it is now in Dublin again, sadly. Mm. But that you just have to survive, and I think that makes it very, very contingent unless you're independently wealthy to be able yeah. to act with free spiritedness here. Mm. Um, That's a good point, actually. But it's still possible, I think, mm. if people become aware that that's an available discourse, I think. Yeah, I yeah. think you've got, you've got to have a degree of self-awareness about what you're, what you're doing and what the system that you are a part of is, is doing and where we are. Yeah, for sure. But there, it, it's definitely a, quite a, a tight situation, I suppose. Yeah. There's not the same looseness. It's an interesting one, and it's when you want to kind of read the tea leaves too much but I do think that 
for all the financial exuberance of Ireland pre-2008, pre-the crash, there wasn't that much good work happening. You know, if we're honest about it. Like, there's a lot oh, of very yeah, talented architects. full of really great buildings, that's it. You and know, all of the... amount of money that went into the construction industry. Yeah, but also all of those practices which have sort of lowered the, the, the drawbridge or whatever it is to this kind of more global discourse of architecture got all their major breaks off off the shores of Ireland, really. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. in many cases did their best work, their kind of masterpieces that graduated them off the shores of Ireland. Because um, there wasn't space for it in the country, actually. It wasn't being allowed. It wasn't. No. No. Um, so maybe, maybe the fact that architecture was marginalised was necessary because nobody really cared. <laughs> no, I wouldn't wish that on London, but I am mindful of a time in London where architecture was marginalised and out of that comes things like the Half Moon Theatre or the Listen. And, and there you go, they're still radical buildings. They're mm. still amazingly, profoundly new, even though they've been, they're over 30 years old. Um, I'm digressing. Um, so where are you now? I mean, what's, how do you work? <laughs> Jesus, Andrew, you're that's doing, not a small question. You're doing bigger projects, right? So Yes, well, we marginally bigger. Marginally bigger. <laughs> it's not, not hugely bigger. We're, we're certainly doing less domestic work. We're uh, working with, okay, I mean, we're doing some domestic work, it's, and we love doing houses, actually. But it's quite nice to work on things that aren't houses. So we're working with some schools and an education trust. Um, we're doing stuff for Dublin City Council. So we have, I mean, some projects tend to lead to other projects. So the Marion Cricket Club that we did, um, that... Uh, we're now doing another sports pavilion in a beautiful park in Dublin for Dublin City Council. So I think, and it's a, a tennis and bowling club and in a in a very kind of mature um, landscape there. So I think that could be a really nice project and it'll probably be, you know, definitely related in term, in some ways to Rick Club. But, um, and um, we're doing, I mean, we've done things like done a kind of a, a master plan for a city centre school campus, quite a um, historic campus with lots of um, listed buildings and looking about how, I mean, the chat, there's, I mean, there's challenges in every project, but the challenge of this was how do they significantly alter or change or improve this campus without ever losing a classroom? With the, with the school being live all the way through and I think the, the head teacher was very good he said a school is like an organism you know even a small change can can kill it you know so our students can't be taught in Porter Cabins. But it was interesting with that master plan yeah. the first built part of it was a new door to the school. Yes. So I guess where I'm kind of going is that Part of the way you seem to work, which is allowing you to scale very easily from small domestic work to much bigger projects, mm. is these moments of daily liturgy or ritual. Mm. They're found in all things. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that. I think like the moving up in, up in scale. You're totally paraphrasing our talk later, by the way. But this the strategies that we had used in let's say like a, a, a domestic refurbishment we are using similar strategies at the scale of a, a big city centre um, school campus you know mm. that there's kind of acupuncture little moments or screens that have an intensity of 
materiality and detail and use I suppose and then you have breathing space where nothing really happens and then there are other moments so there's strategies like that and I, I do think the approach this thing of a, a kind of a layered cultural approach of things being local to the place but being having connection to cultures which have absolutely nothing to do with that place which are kind of imposed by I suppose our own experience or our own internal library of things we've seen and, and, and like I mean that happens at the scale of a house and happens at the scale of a public building like they're, they're, they're still present there so I actually haven't noticed any really fundamental shift in how we work from how we did those early houses to how we're now working on larger scale although they're not vast scale but they're no they're, I mean we're I mean, still like 500 square meter building but they're there's they're um well I mean the campus is, is a big campus I mean there's things like I mean you, you treat the campus a bit like you think of it almost not not a house but you can think of it on that scale like one of our strategies was to say it's got a central courtyard and to say they always want to densify their campus but the campus is incredibly dense already and you, we sort of had to propose with something which was a bit of paradox for them because they didn't, you know, it seems really sort of counterintuitive. But we said, right, well, you need to create more open space because by creating more open space, you can actually become denser. So you need to knock things down and make smaller courtyards and then you can actually get much more accommodation. Um, and potentially then it opens up because at the moment you kind of ring this courtyard, you can never acquire sites either way so because you can't get to them um so like you know again this kind of acupuncture thing make open space here and here you can link your existing courtyard you can call these quadrangles and then you can expand your school in i mean the amazing thing with working in school like that it's been on the site for 200 years so we were doing a 10-year master plan but a 10-year master plan for them is a blink of an eye mm. you know and they sort of, they just wait people out if they have a problem with a neighbour. <laughs> they just wait, you know? And like, so they're, they really think 50 years in the future sometimes, you know, where, okay, for the next 50 years, we don't need any more space. But, you know, if we were ever going to acquire land, where would that be? And then, so it's an amazing way to think about something. And it's, you know, and other things like thinking about roofs, you know, they have these, what they call their new buildings, but the new buildings are 25 years old. Um, and all the roofs need to be replaced. And it feels like they were built, I remember these buildings being mm. built, it feels like they were built yesterday, but already they now have to spend 300,000 euros replacing their roof. And it really brought home to me this thing about using the appropriate, back again, going back to what we we're kind of talking about, what are the appropriate materials and forms and things like that for our climate, you know, back to these very basic vernacular things. And to realise, you know, that the saving of a, a flat roof 25 years ago you know it's going to cost you that in 35 in 25 years and it's going to cost you twice that in the next 25 years do you know um so it's all the same lessons over and over again i think mm. but just hopefully a bigger scale it's interesting to start thinking about a bigger time scale it seems like really the change is actually not so much the physical scale of things mm. but working with a client who you know in the school that we're talking about is it is a big piece of of mm. Dublin's city fabric and they are the custodians of it and have been yeah. for a long time and will be for as long as we know whereas a family house you know it might stay together for the lifetime of the family or it might be for five years or ten years or you know somebody has another child and they need to move or whatever and it moves on beyond your control mm. but this is kind of an interesting 
But the real paradox I think in there is is that they have to take this very long view, this yeah. kind of fifty year view. But funding, um, the way that you funding, they can only fund. You can only look six years ahead in funding, because a child only attends the school for six years. So you have to make sure that you're building something. If someone is funding you, you've got to um, build that thing. Or at least get started while their child is still at the school, you know, to so that they can see. Th- so it is this very difficult situation. Like all clients have these have kind of these kind of uh, contradictions, I suppose, whether they're domestic or whether they're um, a committee for or a board of a school. You know that there are these. You know, I want to build something in a house. It's always, you know, I want, I need six bedrooms, but I can only afford two. You know, it's a similar thing. We have to think in fifty years but we need to do it within the next six, you know? <laughs> it's kind of crazy but what's interesting and impossible. About, what's interesting <laughs> about that is that um, where a cynic like Rem Kolhas or um, MVRDV or something would take that requirement, which is, oh, we have to think in a 50-year time frame, but we need to realise in a six, they would find that's an incredibly insightful way to a heart of some bizarre form-making <laughs> diagram, right? Um, that's not what your agenda is, because your agenda is, yes, we get the paradox of 6 and, ten and 50, but we are going to act as architects in this manner on this site. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, We're going to act for the good of the 50. Yeah. 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 Despite the available witticism in another take, uh, which I think is, 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 is both interesting, but must be frustrating your side of the table. It must be... Mm, it's an almost impossible thing to do. I mean, if you if you are taking it in that kind of sort of the the naive genuine way that you want to do the best it's it it's it, it is a really difficult thing to do but but i think the way that you do it is that you you have that attitude for the wider thing and then you show it and you display it through these small things mm. that we're actually doing to show that that kind of care and attention and the long view can be produced in small bits and that you know eventually they'll accrete to um to it all becoming that way um so would you what advice would you have now for somebody who was studying architecture i would say look all around you in many ways you know like i i the 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 value i think i was banging the drum on on travel but the the value of travel of experiencing first hand and it doesn't have to be incredibly exotic travel it can be to you know mainland Europe or something like that or even just around different parts of England um do you okay sorry I ruined that oh well you can't just see England you can't <laughs> England is a, is a place I know a I know okay all right. have you finished I just cut in in the middle of yours, Wendy. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Keep going on. Okay. Oh, yeah. But, I, but I'd agree with you, actually, as a person that never... that I, I think my passion for architecture only really came when I really started going to buildings. And I think it's the same as Keane. They don't have to be high master works, but it's to go to a beautiful cathedral and really stand there and look. Not to look at the things that you think you should look at, you know, proportions and is this Gothic or Romanesque or whatever, but to just go and stand and say, wow, this is just amazing. And to approach them in that way, to be open to the experience and to walk and look and just be there for a while. They, 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 
you again it's this thing that unconsciously all this kind of the, the delight and wonder that is still there in architecture and should be there if you're going to be an architect it seeps into you and then it comes back out when you're designing something and I'd also say I think and I said it already is that again university isn't the be all and end all that you can come into your own when you when you start working when you start actually being an architect you're not an architect yet you're only an architect when you're doing the day-to-day job of being an architect and there's plenty of people that that is where they um, find themselves I suppose or find their feet Alice Keane thank you very much thank you you, Laura thank you thank you for listening to this episode of Register and thanks again to Alice and Keane for their time and thanks too to Laura for joining me to interview them Before signing off, I'd like to thank Laura also for having to organise a series of lectures and podcasts and look forward to you joining us next time. Thank you very much.